Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Hello again, fellow saxophone players. I thought this episode would be a little bit different because it was recorded live in front of an audience at the Melbourne International Saxophone Festival, organised by Joseph Lalo. Cliff was a featured guest artist at the festival. It was a great chance to catch up with him in person and also talk with him in front of a live audience. It can't be easy to answer a bunch of personal questions in front of a lot of people and Cliff did a great job of really telling his story about how he became and how he is a professional saxophone player. I'd be curious to know what you think of this live format and please let me know if you think I should do some more of these face-to-face interviews in front of a public audience. Clifford Lehman is in great demand as a soloist and clinician throughout the world and has been a featured guest artist in China nine times. He's performed as a concerto soloist with the Shenzhen Symphony Orchestra at the 12th and 15th World Saxophone Congresses and the North American Saxophone Alliance's 2006 and 2014 biennial conferences. He was also a featured concerto soloist at the 2008 International Navy Band Symposium in Washington, D.C. Professor of Saxophone at the University of South Carolina, Cliff received the Bachelor of Science degree in Music Education from Lebanon Valley College and the Master of Music and Doctor of Musical Arts degrees in performance from the University of Michigan, where he was a student of Donald Sinter. An avid supporter of contemporary music, Cliff has commissioned and given world premiere performances of numerous works, including concertos by Pulitzer Prize-winning composers Leslie Bassett, William Balcom, and Michael Colgras. He has released four critically acclaimed compact discs of works for saxophone and piano on the Equilibrium label. Cliff has also performed extensively with percussionist Scott Herring, giving concerts and masterclasses throughout the world since 2005 when they formed the Rosewind duo. Please welcome my guest today, American saxophone professor Clifford Lehman. Thanks for coming, my live audience. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a little bit different to just being on the internet where you don't get a response uh, except for later. You know, it's the, the delayed response. So it's very nice to be able to, to talk in front of people. So we're going to keep it intimate. Has anybody listened to an episode of The Barry Sack Show? One. Congratulations. <laughs> no, that's good. It's been an interesting project, which I started in February, and I've recorded now 22 episodes of the show, and it's been fascinating to talk to different people from different countries with different backgrounds, but I'm interested in how people get to where they get to, their story. And it's the sort of thing you can't read in a biography, you can't hear on a disc and you can't hear in a live performance. So that's why I'm doing this and it's, I think over time what can be discovered will reveal itself. That's the sort of end game to find something in there. So it's my great pleasure today to welcome Cliff and thank you very much for flying all the way to the, from the States for this interview. Thank you, Barry. It's great to be here. My starting point, I guess, with everybody is how did you get started with the saxophone? That's actually a, a, a bit of a funny story. Um, in um, third grade, I started playing piano, which was my parents' tradition was to start all of their children in third grade on piano and then either a stringed instrument or something else later. And um, I chose the violin and uh, they wouldn't let me do it at the school because I was left-handed and they said left-handers can't play string instruments, which if you think about it, seems backwards. Um, but at the time, we knew nothing, and so we just took their advice, didn't start on the stringed instrument. And the next year, the music store sent a representative, and they played all of the different wind and percussion instruments, and there's one I particularly liked. But by the time they brought the form out, what seemed like three years later, um, I couldn't remember the name of the instrument. And uh, one of my friends said, oh, it was saxophone. And I said, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't. 
And he said, no, I know it is because my uncle's got one and I'm going to play his. And I said, oh, all right, then your memory's got to be better than mine. So I put it down, was very disappointed. It didn't have any movable slides when I got it. But my parents had proudly pronounced that they spent $300 on this instrument, so I needed to take care of it, and I didn't have the heart to tell them it wasn't what I wanted. So, I'm a saxophonist. Did you start in a typical environment of a school band setting? Yes. Um, in Pennsylvania and in the U.S., they start regionally at different ages. In Pennsylvania, it was fourth grade, so when I was nine was when they brought all the instruments, and then we started in band at that time. So, was your first teacher the band director or did you have a specialist? My first teacher was the band director until eighth grade four years later when my mother decided it was time to get me some lessons and see if um, I think it was probably self-preservation on her part so that what she had to, to endure at home was, was sounding better. My band director asked her the perfect question which was do you want the best teacher in town or is just anybody good enough? And Mom didn't think just anybody was good enough, so they went with the best teacher, and that's how I got hooked. Uh, his name was Frank Stackow, and uh, he taught all the woodwinds, was just a spectacular teacher and pedagogue, um, near the end of his career at that point, but uh, he got me loving the instrument. Did you find having a non-specialist to get started with uh, a disadvantage in the sense that your specialist teacher then had to adjust and fix things up that you might have picked up along the way? I'm not sure if I remember that far back, to be honest. Uh, I remember at one point my band director asking, did you always have that pure, pretty sound, or is that since you started lessons? And I, I didn't even know at that point, because what did I know? I was, I was completely unschooled musically when we started. So you played in the band at high school, and you obviously enjoyed that enough to then go and study science at university? Well, that's an interesting uh, degree. Uh, the Bachelor of Science is what you're talking about. I didn't study science, although I intended to when I went there. I, I really wasn't convinced I was going to be a music major until the end of my freshman year. I thought I was going to switch over to chemistry, which was another of my, my big loves in high school. But that school, rather than giving a BM in music education, gave a BS in music education. So they're really, I never took a science class in college. It's an interesting degree to have your, against your name. I think it's one of, yeah, it feels it's against my name. <laughs> I think it's one of the oddities of that school. They were known for their music education program. They were uh, the highest placing school as far as getting jobs after graduation at that time, which was very low. I think it was 25% of their graduates got jobs teaching. And um, I just assumed that I would make sure I got into that top 25% and was able to land a job. And I really thought I would teach public school for my career at that point in time. Um, but it worked out. So I did teach middle school band for one year and then went to graduate school. One year. Was that a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience then? It certainly was. <laughs> I learned a lot about music. I learned even more about people that year. Yeah. So what, what drew you into further study, into your master's? Into the master's. By the time I graduated from under, undergraduate school where I studied with Dave Bilger, um, I, I had enough success that I felt like I could do this at a high level and really wanted to see if I could get into academia at the university level as a career. By that point, I had made that decision very firmly. And did you go straight into a doctoral program after that? Sort of. I, um, I had a year between the undergraduate and master's degree where I taught middle school band, and then I had a year between the master's and the doctoral degree because of some snafus um, that made it financially not advantageous for me to go right in that next year. I stayed in Michigan. I studied with, with Don Sinta during that year where I wasn't technically a student. I was also teaching at the university level by that point at Eastern Michigan. So I had a lot of part-time college-level jobs, did some teaching at Michigan as an assistant to him. So it felt like I was in school, though technically I wasn't until the following year. So you've experienced a range of teachers in your training, but also you, you've had, I guess with Don Sinter, someone who's regarded really as one of the, the gurus of saxophone teaching. Could you describe some of the differences that you've come across in your learning between the different teachers you've had? 
Sure. Some of it is personality based and, and style of teaching. And some of it was just where I was musically at the time. My, my teacher in high school, Frank Stackow, was very nuts and bolts. He taught me how to practice, how to overcome technical problems and how to approach music um, to a level that I was probably intellectually capable of at that time. It didn't rise to the level of artistry, but it rose to the level of paying attention to dynamics and all of the details on the page. When I got to undergraduate school, I studied with Dave Bilger at Lebanon Valley College, and Dave was a protege of Sigurd Rascher. He had also studied with Don Sinta early in Don's career, but he really, he showed the influence of Rascher more than Sinta at that point in his life. And he just had a, a real love of making music that was very special and very unique and helped me get um, attracted even, even at a higher level. My experience has been, and, and this has become a bit of a theme in the way I go about teaching, is that the better I sounded, the more I enjoyed it. The more I enjoyed it, the more I wanted to play. So I played more, and the more I played, the better I got. And the better I got, the more. And so it took over for itself and became... My, my own internal motivation, and I try, try to motivate my students that way. Sinta was completely different than anybody. He's a very unique personality. He fools around what, he'll pull out his, his key chain and say, these are all keys, they all unlock something. This one is my house, this one's the car, this one is you know something else, my office door. They're all similar but different. And he would search around till he found the key that unlocked the learning for a student. And I, and I still operate a lot on that philosophy. And he found mine. Um, he would say little, little barbs in a lesson that would kind of irritate me. And I'd think about them all week, which is the goal. And I would just, I would, I would practice on that issue until he stopped nagging me about it. Uh, it was never cruel or unkind, but he just knew how to plant the seed in my brain so that I knew what I was working on at any given time. And then he, um, I was brought up rather conservative and Don saw the need for me to break out of that. He encouraged me to listen to great artists at a level that I hadn't prior to then. I had always thought I listened to music but I listened very differently um, and a lot more frequently when I got to, to Michigan at his prompting. And then he just encouraged me to find in my soul all the things that I don't think I am. For instance, at his retirement um, concert, I was invited to come up and play Lilith. And if you know that piece by William Balcom, it's about sort of the most evil woman in the history of the planet. Seems like an odd thing for me to, to love the most, but it was the one thing that he taught me is that I have an inner woman, I have an inner demon. I can let them out when, when it's appropriate. And, uh, and I think I'm a far more artistic musician than I would have been without that prompting. Do you think your teaching now is informed by the teachers you had yourself or has your style evolved and moved on? That's a great question. I think all of us reflect our teachers mostly in the early part of our career. I'm in now my <clears throat> 34th year teaching college. And for the first three years, I think I said a lot of things that were not my voice, but voices of my teachers. If I was teaching young students, what Frank Stackow would have said, more advanced students, what Don Sinta would have said. I actually jumped out of my office one day and stood at the balcony of the mezzanine of the, of the concert hall where my office was and started, started laughing that the advice I had just given that student was not my advice, it was Don Sinta's. I don't have that so much anymore. I think all, if you look at composers, they reflect their teachers for the first third of their career then come into their own in the middle and then get rather uniquely personal at the, at the end of their career. I think I'm somewhere in that second moving into the third stage and I think we do the same thing as teachers. Could you give a piece of advice to a student starting out, let's say they're in their undergraduate or early, early stages, could you give them a bit of advice that you might have liked to have heard? Sure. Um, many different things, but the most important, I think, is, is go to concerts and lis listen to great artists and just wear what they're doing 
understand it, listen again and again and again until you figure out why they do what they do and how they do what they do. Uh, I've always been a big proponent of working hard on a daily basis, but the truth is, if you're just completely self-involved with what you're learning, you're not open to what the rest of the world has, and it's a big world and a lot of great things. You have to actually get out of your practice room in order to improve your music. First thing Don Sinta told me, shocked me, was why I still remembered. He said, I think you need to practice less. I said, what? Nobody says that. Nobody ever says that. What do you mean? He said, well, next week there's a big concert coming into Hill Auditorium, and instead of practicing for those three hours, why don't you go ahead and go to the concert? So he really wasn't asking me to practice less, but he was asking me not to give up those kind of experiences to, to keep completely in my own personal experience. One of the last tours I did in Australia, and this is the reason I stopped doing them, but I gave a workshop and there was a concert that evening and I invited the people who were in the workshop, of course, to come to the concert. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, we can't come tonight. I'm like, why can't you come? And they said, well, because we have a rehearsal tonight. Right. And I get the feeling sometimes that people get so fixated with what they're doing themselves that they, they don't venture outside. Yeah, I think it's been at least 35 years since I knew more than everybody else in the room combined. <laughs> Maybe a little longer, I hope. Now, I've heard students say they find it difficult to find enough time to practice. Uh, the irony of that, of course, as when you're not a student anymore, there's even less time. Exactly. Yeah. Milk the time you have while you have it because it doesn't get easier. So what's the difference now as a really busy person compared to being a student? What's the difference in your practice? That's a great question. And, and um, my practice has, has evolved. And we like to say in the US, necessity is the mother of invention. And if you have limited hours of practice per day, but a goal that you have to achieve so you don't embarrass yourself in front of a public audience. And, and I like to think my life is a, is a sequence of avoidance techniques for embarrassment so I don't, you know, do something I regret when I'm on stage, like this afternoon. Um, but the truth of it is, I've learned to be absolutely ruthless in choosing what needs practice today and what can be left alone. I'm braver. Occasionally I make mistakes and I find that out on stage. Maybe I should have spent a little more time on that one. For some reason it, it, it jumped out and, and bit me. But the truth of it is a month ago I was juggling 17 pieces and then that grew to 19 or 20. And then as each successive performance happened, it shrunk and I'm down to about seven or eight right now. There's no time to practice everything every day and you have to know what needs it and what can be left alone. I must admit, sometimes I find myself practicing the bits I can play and the bits I can't play, oh, I'll do those tomorrow. Is there any, anything you've found that can just help that uh, typical kind of approach? Fear. <laughs> uh, personal fear helps me with that, but I understand that. And, and there's validity to that too, because if you're always working on things that you struggle with, the pleasure isn't as great. When you do something that you can really handle and you get joy, that joy then I think functions as a real useful tool for, for the need and the desire to practice the other things too. So would you say the next performance is your motivation or do you still have the joy of just practicing for practice sake? I don't have that joy anymore. I did as a student, but now I set up performances on a very regular basis and that's what motivates my practice. If I didn't have a performance until December, I could take the day off, but I have one this afternoon, so I was in early this morning warming up. <laughs> Is memorization something that forms part of both your practice and also your music making? Early in my career, more than it has lately. Um, I won concerto competitions with Ebert and Glazunov and things and pl have played them from memory numerous times. Uh, had a terrible experience in one competition that I actually won where one of the judges was sure my pianist flipped two pages because I was flying along just great and all of a sudden it's like those IMAX theaters where you're in the helicopter and all of a sudden the bottom falls out and you're 2000. That's how it felt. Um, 
One of the judges was convinced that it wasn't my fault. I have no idea to this day exactly what happened, but I've had a couple of scary incidences like that, and I've performed from memory less and less over the years as a result. For me, having the music there, even if I'm not reading it, is a safety net, and it, I think I open up more musically as a result. There's, there's a lot of validity to memori memorizing music because you look at it differently, you analyze it, you, you size up the chord structure and the harmonic basis of, of a phrase, and I think a certain level of your understanding grows from doing that. But after I've done that, then I still want to have the music handy just in case. You say one thing you do in your practice that actually saves you time, something so efficient that it's a really useful tool. In a, on a technical basis, I practice in rhythms all the time. I have a set group that I use. I use them every morning in my scale warm-up. And what it does is it takes a lot more precision to move in a set rhythm than move steadily. Uh, Londex calls it training the reflexes, and I do that every morning, retrain them. If I, if I get out of that routine for more than three days, I notice it because they're just little inconsistencies that I usually don't have to deal with. So I was, that's what I did this morning, too, rather than practice the music that I'm going to play this afternoon. I went through my regimen of scales and the regimen of rhythms so that I know when I want an E, it comes exactly then, not a nanosecond later or earlier. It would seem students are by nature inefficient in their practice and they throw time to solve problems. Efficiency is something that's gradually learned over time. Do you think we could shortcut that and encourage people to be efficient right from the start? Or is it a natural process we have to go through? I think it's a combination. I spend a lot of time teaching my students how to practice. If they come in with a problem that was not solved in their lesson, we'll solve it in the lesson and I'll show them the techniques that I would use. Hopefully then they use the same kinds of techniques when they go, go off on their own. But I do think if it was as easy as turning on a light switch, we wouldn't need as many lessons as most of us have needed. I know I wouldn't have. <laughs> now you've played for decades at the highest level, is there something that you've done to maintain your health uh, as a saxophonist so that you can always play at your best? Yeah, that's, a, that's another really good question. I have had some issues over time with my hands. Um, I, I played a lot of racquetball at one, at one point in my life, not that long ago, and I, and I still play some. And I took a racquetball off a knuckle, and a year later it was still swollen and sore, and so I went to a hand specialist who said, well, it's not a big deal. You just have osteoarthritis in all of your joints. No problem. And I said, uh, did, the, did the nurse tell you what I do? And um, he said, no, what do you do? I said, I'm a musician. That's a big deal to me. So I've learned that I have to be very careful with my hands. If I have pain anywhere, I'm very receptive to trying to alleviate that and pay a lot of attention. I've had some inflammation of various tendons that I have kept at bay. My philosophy is, and my experience is, if you catch it early, you can keep control of it. If you, if you let it go down that path till you have a problem and have to shut down your playing for a while, you're going to deal with it a lot longer. So I tell my students to pay very close attention to what their body's telling them. If they're feeling a pain, we try to figure out what's causing it. It's almost always tension-based. Sometimes it's genetic, but... But even at such, I think I have another 15 or 20 years to play before the arthritis is going to slow me down. I certainly hope so. Um, but that comes from a, a good regimen. I do a lot of stretching exercises to keep things moving uh, in the fingers mostly. Um, of course, there are the neck and back problems that saxophones tend to have. That one I haven't solved. If anybody has the answer, let me know. Maybe Don Sinter had it right. Uh, you need to practice less. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Would you describe your career development as an organic process or was it something that was very much planned and goal-oriented? Again, probably a combination. I always had in mind that I wanted to end up at the university level and that by the time I retired, feel like I had made an impact on the saxophone world at some level. I feel like I've achieved that. I've had three basic jobs, Eastern Michigan for four years as an adjunct, and then Furman University, a very 
highly academically oriented liberal arts college with a great music program. I did that for 11 years and now I'm starting my 19th at a major research flagship university uh, with a really strong music program and a much larger one. So that has grown in, in the right direction for me. I, I'm not a, a job hopper, but I've made the change when it's, when it's been warranted and, and I'm very happy with where I've landed. I have now 15, I believe, of my former students teaching at the university level. So I feel like the impact that I've made is gonna last for a long time because they're all teaching students. And, and that, that was my main goal, was to have an impact so that when I retire and die, I can breathe a, a breath of relief and say, I made a difference in, in my part of the world. So in that sense, one of your legacies is the knowledge you leave in your students who pass that on again. I certainly hope so. Recording, it would seem, has been a big part of your career both through releases and uh, albums. How important professionally has that been, but also artistically? Very important. Um, my first recording that was released uh, commercially was one I did while I was uh, at Michigan. Uh, recorded the Henry Brandt Concerto because at the time I was one of the few people who slapped tongue with a lot of speed and regularity and the Brandt Concerto, which was written for Rosher. Anybody know that piece? It's not, not all that well known. It's terrific. Um, but I had recorded that for a project that I wanted to do that then sort of fell by the wayside but was picked up by another CD project by one of my colleagues at Eastern Michigan. My first full-length CD was done in 97, 98 um, at Furman, and it was terribly difficult for me to cut the cord. I'm a perfectionist. I'm a little bit OCD or maybe a lot OCD. Um, and it was very, very difficult for me to put anything out knowing it would never get better. So that one was a struggle for me. After the dam broke and we did that, I realized the world didn't end. My career didn't end, everything was gonna be okay, and then I started recording a lot more. I have four full-length CDs with piano and two with percussion. I started a saxophone marimba duo about a decade ago, and we've done a lot of commissioning and a lot of recording, and I find that to be a, a great outlet. The, the thing I learned in that first recording in 97 when I started listening to the takes was some things that I didn't like about my playing and I've listened to myself much more carefully than I, I did at that time. I thought I was listening to myself very carefully. I think that CD is really strong. I'm very happy with it. But I was shocked by little things that I didn't appreciate about my playing when I heard it. And it caused me to change what I listened for in my practicing and my playing. And I, and I think I've improved enormously as a result. How would you describe the process now of instead of sending out highly curated recordings, there's a lot more live performance being released on YouTube, for example. Do you think that's a beneficial process for a student or is it also potentially something damaging that they have to live with forever? I think actually probably the opposite. When I grew up on recordings of Vincent Abato playing Glasnov and Ebert and Landex and Rousseau and Mule, and I thought, because they were recorded, that's how the piece goes. Then I started making recordings and I, I, can, I realized that every recording I make is a snapshot in time of where I was at that three or four day period. And you know, I've recorded the Schumann romances and, and a lot of other romantic language pieces. I would never play them the same way now or wouldn't have played them the same way the day after the recording session. And I try to encourage my students to understand that. I think when you listen to live recordings on YouTube, you're probably more likely to understand that that is that snapshot in time. Everything isn't perfect. That's the other thing about CDs. You can edit until you have everything you want. Whether you still want that six months later after it comes out is another question to answer. But that idea of perfection in live performance can be debilitating to some people. And I think the fact that they can hear live performance where there's a little thing here or there, 
Um, and I've gone back to some of those old recordings, and they're not perfect either. And that's when I started realizing it's okay to not be perfect. I think the live performances on YouTube, there's certainly a lot more information available to students now. They can hear almost any piece they want to play, played by a multitude of people, some better than others. But they get to hear that spectrum, and they get to hear more choices. It's much more readily available than it was when I was growing up. Would you say interpretation, therefore, is broadening because people have access to a, a different way, a different range of playing? Potentially, yes. But I also think that in a lot of ways it's brought the saxophone world closer together. I, I think the French and American schools in their sound concept are much more similar than they were when it was Mule and, and Teal and Sinta and people like that in Landex. I think... Um, what I hear coming from Europe today and what I hear coming from America and, of course, Japan and Australia and all the other places, I think it's a little bit more unified, to be honest. And that's probably part of the factoring of that. So is it just another symptom of globalization that we're starting to play in a similar way? I would say so. In my opinion, it is. So is, is that a gain or a loss? I prefer to think of it as a gain. I can see how both could be possible, but I prefer to think of it as a game. Have you actively sought to develop an audience to encourage people to experience the events that you run? Probably not. Um, that may be a shortcoming in my career. Um, I try to grab audiences where I play, and I, you know, it's, it's always better if you get invited back to the same place because that's the best indication of whether they appreciated what you brought. Um, and in that sense, there, there's sort of a core audience that comes back. But as far as a global audience, I probably haven't pursued that much. The saxophone is often played before other saxophone players. Now, that's created an academic environment where our audience members are often made up of people who play our instruments. So they have a unique insight into our performance. Is there something that you do that also helps take the saxophone out into the wider community? I think the rep repertoire choices that we make um, are the biggest impact there. If I play for a chamber music series in Florence, South Carolina, I'm going to play a lot more tonal music, a lot more. If I play something more contemporary, it's not going to be Lilith. I'm sorry. I won't play it in that audience, but I'll play it at my school and my university and other universities. So... I like to program a combination of fun and stretching and learning. Um, but how far I'll stretch will be determined by the audience I'm, I'm playing for. Because you do want to be invited back. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> how important has travel been personally as an artist and also professionally for your development? Crucial. It, it is one of the things I like best about my job is that it's flexible enough that I can travel. I try not to travel all the time because I have a family at home that I, I love dearly and I like to see them as often as I can. So when I was 18, I think my goal would have been, at least secretly if not overtly, to travel the world and play 150 concerts a year. Once I got married and started having children, that would have been closer to hell than heaven for me. And so uh, the college job is a great base for me. I love the teaching. I love working with students. And I get to go home to my family every night. Um, but if I didn't do any of the traveling, I wouldn't be satisfied either. So for me, it has to be a balance. Uh, fortunately, my wife is very supportive of the balance that works best for me emotionally. And so we've made that work. That balance has changed over time. When the girls were really young, I didn't travel as much as I do now. China seems to have been um, a particular audience base for you. Is there something that either drew, drew you to China or that China wanted from you? Yeah, it was, it was very serendipitous in a lot of ways. I was on a gig playing a Broadway musical, probably Chicago, in Greenville for, for the national tour and having a blast. And I got a strange cell phone message from a person I didn't know. And I was about to delete it when I heard him mention a saxophonist named Ken Radnowski that I did know. And I thought, okay, maybe this isn't just spam. Uh, it was, you know, hey, we've got this great thing going in China. We need some terrific saxophonists. Would you be one of, one of the team? And I thought, yeah, that just didn't feel legit. Uh, but when he dropped Ken Radnowski's name, I thought, well, I know Ken. And this was a clarinetist, Jonathan Kohler. 
who I didn't know at the time, but learned to, um, went to my clarinet professor and I said, do you know this guy? He said, oh yeah, he's terrific. I, I make my students listen to all of his recordings. So I was sold. So I called back and, and they brought me over to, to a festival in Yantai. Uh, I went hoping that they would like me enough to invite me back one day. I went home wondering if I needed to buy a, a summer home in China because it went extremely well. And then I got to be sort of the point person to help him organize and, and who to invite the following year. And then I kept making friends and, and I've been back to China nine times. Though not in the last couple of years, I hope to fix that soon again. Uh, wonderful country, wonderful people, but it, it burgeoned out of that first festival and, and making new friends and, and um, being invited back year after year for a while. I guess it, it sounds like part of that organic process where one thing leads to another. You really have to take those opportunities, don't you? Yeah. I, I always think back to a story about the Carpenters. If you were alive in the 70s, you knew the Carpenters pop group. And how they got their start was they won some competition to give them an hour of recording studio time to record a single. So they practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. They came in, played the single for five 10 minutes into the hour and the, the recording people said, well, actually that sounded really good. Do you have anything else? Well, they did. They came prepared and they brought a whole album. And so th this free recording session for a single turned into a free recording session for a complete album. And it's what set them on their way. And one of the things that I like to think that I do well is when I show up to a new place and meet new people, I make sure I'm at my very best because I want, I want that same kind of impact. I think it was Thomas Edison who said, a lot of people miss opportunity because it shows up in overalls and looks a lot like work. <laughs> it sounds like your university is quite flexible in allowing you to pursue your professional career outside of teaching. I bump into people sometimes who struggle with the opposite of that, where they're actually, they're hired to do something and their employer is reluctant to let them outside of that work. Is there a way that you've found to help lubricate those negotiations? Uh, I think a lot of it's just the person you work for. My dean, uh, my current dean who has been at USC for all but my first four years, so I think he's been there 14 years or so. Um, is just the most supportive administrator I've had in my career, and I've had some other good ones. But he early on said to the entire music school, we're going to find money for travel because we know you need to do this. We know you, know you need to get out in the world. And that's when it started opening up for me and my travel budget multiplied by about six or seven fold in, in the year that he took over. Then it shrank when money got tight, but then has burgeoned back up again. So he wants to make sure if I have an opportunity that I can afford to do it and don't have to, to worry about finances. Sounds good. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it seems you're getting more involved with the administrative side of teaching. How do you balance that with your artistic duties? I just work a lot late at night. Um, I am now, I have been for five years, associate dean and undergraduate director of our school of music. And as soon as I get home, I'm going to become graduate director and, and pass the undergrad director off to a colleague. So I'm setting up meetings with the outgoing graduate director on email late at night, trying to figure out when we're both going to be in town to make sure I know, know what I need to know to get the year started. Um, I was supposed to cut back my teaching to about a two-thirds load to make room for the administration, which I did over a couple of year period, didn't enjoy it. So I built the teaching back up to about a full load and, and the administrative things are extra. So you're busy. I'm, I'm, I'm stupid that way. <laughs> You've premiered many new pieces. How important has working with composers been to you? I think it's the most exciting thing I do. I've, uh, in the last couple of years, I've premiered concertos by Frank Tichelli and William Balcom and just recently Stacy Garrup. Um, had dinner with Stacy when I was visiting my daughter in Evanston last month and commissioned her to write a new piece for saxophone and marimba. Our latest CD of that duo is seven pieces all written for us, all, all that we premiered. And the premieres get us in some ways all over the world. And 
And I, I felt early in my career, even as a student, that no one will ever forget Sigurd Rascher. And the reason isn't so much because of his playing as it is because of the pieces that he got for us that he commissioned. And it occurred to me that I thought, if I want to have a long-term legacy past when I'm done playing, probably commissioning good music is the best way to secure that. And so I have tried really hard to commission the best composers I can afford. Um, and that's gotten better and better. And sometimes, you know, just young upstarts who whose star is on the rise so that you catch them when they're affordable. And then later I caught Frank to Kelly when we were both students and I got his first saxophone quartet written for me and premiered it in one of my dissertation recitals. And it was cheap. And then about five years ago, we commissioned Frank to write a concerto, and it was decidedly not cheap. But the fact that it, that quartet was written by the same composer brings the value of it to the core of the saxophone world and outside the saxophone world at the same level as, as his more recent works that are just a lot more costly because he's worth it. Is there a quality you've seen in these new pieces that you think helps a piece to endure so that it will be played many times in the future? That's really very personal. I've, pre I've premiered a lot of pieces that are very esoteric and very difficult for your general audience and a lot that are very pop-oriented and very rhythmically based and fun for anybody. I think the core sophistication becomes evident over time in repeated performances and what we may think of as the best piece we commission today may end up being one we don't play in 10 years and it's something else. For me, Lilith, when I first learned the piece, I didn't think I was ever gonna play the thing. And it, it rapidly, as I grew to understand it, and the reason I didn't think I'd play it very often is all the noises that I had to make. And when I realized why they were in the piece and what they did for the character, then I learned to love it and, and it became my very favorite piece to play and I played it everywhere. I need to put it back on a program this year, I think. And an extension of composition is improvisation. Is that something that you use, one, in your own practice, but also in performance? For me, that's a bit more limited. Um, Bolcom requires you to, to come up with your own cadenza. So in, in essence, that there's an improvisation and I've improvised more at the cadenza level Worked with jazz some early in my career, realized I was never going to get to the top end of the jazz world, so I invested myself more heavily in the classical world. Um, certainly pieces like Fuzzy Bird Sonata have some improvisation as part of it, and the Nota improvisations, of course, things like that, yes. In the jazz style, that's not really my thing. I wish it were. Um, I encourage my students to get started earlier than I did, because I think it's easier the problem is the better you get as a classical player, you have a self-esteem issue when you come in at a different level as a, as a jazz player, and that self-esteem issue can be very difficult to overcome. I, I actually ran the jazz program at Furman for the 11 years I was there. I've gotten very conversant. I think I can swing. I've done a lot of listening, but you're not a jazz player if you don't improvise well, so there it is. Now, I have some rapid-fire questions for you, so feel free to give a brief answer. Okay. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Is there something that you believe that few people agree with? As a saxophonist, potentially the mouthpiece pitch that I prefer. Um, all the books say A. I like B. I like B for what it does to a lot of different things, including tonguing. And double tonguing, because the back of the tongue is closer to the roof of the mouth. What effect does it have besides the articulation? Well, it gives you a lot more flexibility for pulling pitch down. I move my mouthpiece to a point where the lower register is in tune comfortably, and then I have to fight with the upper. If I'm already submarining in the back of my oral cavity to get to that spot, then I have to work much harder to bring those sharp pitches down. If I'm on the higher side, and I, I don't personally prefer the C, although I know a few people who do. For me, when I hear a student do the C, it sounds tight. But the B for me still feels really open and then gives me much more flexibility in the back of the oral cavity to do the things I want. If there was just one piece of music that you had to play from now on, which piece would that be? Boy, you know, probably the Bach Partita 1013. Sorry, it wasn't originally written for us. 
I judged a competition five or six years ago where I heard 45 Ebers and 45 uh, Klonos and 45 Sarabans from that partita. And after 45, I didn't really need to hear Ebers or Klonos for a little while, and I loved those pieces, but I couldn't stop listening to the Bach. So that, I think, with all the ornamentation and all of the things in it, would probably keep me interested more than, than a lot of pieces. If you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend that hour? For instance, this morning, <laughs> um, probably the first quarter of it, 15 minutes or so, doing my warm-up and getting the reflexes in shape. And then the rest of it would be determined by what I'm doing next. And since I have performances this weekend, I went right into a couple of pieces that I just wanted to feel comfortable. And it was good because I forgot how to play a couple of measures in one piece, and I had to remember, re-remember how to do that. Who do you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone world? Well, certainly as a pedagogue, Don Sinta, um, if you look around the, the saxophone world, particularly in the U.S., he has had an enormous impact, um, part, partly because he's such a beautiful musician and player, and partly because he's such a unique teacher and is, in my opinion, probably one of the most astute assessors of people when you walk into I walked into his office and he looked at me and told me all of my lifelong goals that I had never verbalized to anyone and my first thought was wow that's a bit presumptuous and my second thought was but he is spot on um, he's very good at assessing you what you want and then how to get you there and I think his impact in the saxophone world's been huge if we learn from our mistakes is it okay to make mistakes I don't think we have a choice. Um, I think we can learn from our successes and our failures. Frequently the lesson is the same. I should probably work harder. Um, but I, we're going to make mistakes if we can use them as a tool for learning. Absolutely. Are you okay when you make a mistake on stage? Do you move no. on easily? No. <laughs> I, I scold myself for long periods of time, but not while I'm on stage. Right. That's for after I walk off. Now, you've come to Australia to perform. What is something that you do before you walk on stage that helps you to perform at your best? If I can have five minutes alone, I love that because I focus on what I'm about to do. I get the energy level up. I welcome the adrenaline into my bloodstream. Adrenaline's a wonderful drug. People pay a lot of money to get adrenaline rushes, all those theme parks and those rides where you think you're going to die, but you, you hope you don't. Um, I don't need that because I play the saxophone in front of other people. So I get the adrenaline there. Um, but I got to be honest, you can't rely on any routine. If you have a routine that you have to have, you're going to come up short sooner or later when you can't have it. I've been in green rooms with four people smoking like chimneys and talking loudly and I can't warm up and I can't breathe. And you go out and you play your best anyway because that's what the audience deserves. Now, with a bit of hindsight, is there a piece of advice that you could give your younger self that you would have loved to have heard? The thing that changed my life the most as a musician that I wish I had done five, ten years earlier is going to more live concerts and listening to more great artists. Now, what are some of the changes that you've seen during your career with the saxophone? And also, what are some of the things that haven't changed that have just stayed the same? The core pedagogy, the core repertoire is still there and we still play it, but the, the, the new repertoire written in the last 20, 30 years has just ballooned at a level that's enormous. I think the style of composition in the U.S. has changed a lot since the 60s where they were much less interested in audience appeal and more in involved with the misunderstood genius and, and all of those things. I think the, the composers that at least I work with by and large have come back to, let's see if we can't say what we want to say musically in a way that, that is palatable to more a larger audience and, and see if we can't win them back. Do you think that ultimately will help the saxophone find a larger audience? I hope so. Um, I think so. I think the saxophone is finding a larger audience. Certainly we have some, some people... Um, doing a lot more concertizing in orchestras. Tim, Tim McAllister with the Adams Concerto has it's, it's been a huge boon to us. Um, certainly Branford Marcellus and what he's doing with crossover things and, and in the classical and jazz worlds. Um, a lot of people are out there. I think the audience is growing, and I think the stigma that a lot of us felt 
in the 60s and 70s is, is going away. It's a slow process, but I think it's going away. Now, could you tell us about a recent project that you have been working on? Well, the one that I, I hate to say it's completed, but um, la uh, April I premiered a new uh, concerto by Stacey Garib that just blew the lid off some things that I thought I knew how to do. Um, incredibly demanding piece, but very rewarding, called Quicksilver. You'll find it on the web. Uh, a couple of people have their, their performances out there. Um, that, that's been a great thing, and that led me to have the conversation with her to commission a new piece in Zagreb. I was chatting with another composer that I really respect. I'll not name him at this point since we hadn't cemented the deal, but hopefully over the next two, three years, I'll have another full CD's worth of new, new projects that I've commissioned for saxophone and marimba. Now, where can we find out more about your activities? Is, um, is your website something you do? Do you prefer social media? What, what do you like? Yeah, <laughs> that hasn't been a strength for me. I find myself um, busy enough that I haven't maintained the face. I do Facebook. I have just about 40 more spots available for friends on Facebook, but I, <laughs> I, I, I go long periods without, without doing much with it. I try to remember to stay active there. The, that would be my most active social media presence. Now, you've made an incredible contribution to the saxophone throughout Thank your you. career. And I get the feeling there's a lot still to come. What do you see for yourself over the next decade, two decades? I've thought about that a lot. Um, I, I've started doing some arrangements for Saxophone Ensemble, did a, an arrangement that's published by Genet Inc. of the Dvorak Opus 44 Serenade that I think is just a stunning piece of music. There are some other arrangements of it out there as well. Um, but I think, I think I may do more of that. I'll probably continue to record for another couple of projects at least, maybe over the next five, seven years. Uh, at that point, I think I may slow down on the recordings. Uh, we'll see. It depends on what projects I have. I would love to do a recording of all concertos that I've commissioned. We have enough uh, repertoire out there that it would make a, a really good full CD of, of what I think are terrific pieces. Uh, but that's that that I will stay with, but I, I do think I'll probably get more into some finale and arrangements and things. Cliff, thank you for your time today. I wish you the best for your performances this weekend, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Barry. Appreciate it. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysax.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs Show.